Testing one, two, testing one, two. How's that sound? I know you're not really, you're really supposed to just talk normally like I'm doing, so that's way you can get a better idea as to where the levels are when I'm talking, because I don't usually say test one, two, test one, two on the show, now do I? Everybody always goes, che, 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 and testing one, two, but it's really best to just talk and make a sentence so that you in the control room there can then gauge to see where the, the levels are best, Right? That's the way the pros do it. <laughs> all right, Reggie, are we ready to go? Because I am. Why waste all this great material now? <laughs> all right, here we go. Oh, if they could only hear what we talk about here, Reg. Wouldn't that be great? It's a show unto itself, but alas, it's just left on the editing, editing room floor. All right, are you ready to go, my friend? Good. Put it in the books, episode 389er, 389. Ready? All right, star, smile, strong. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Don't forget to rate and to subscribe to this podcast. But even more so, don't forget to get out there and tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. That loyalty and that devotion that you show to me every week, and you have been showing to me every week for the past, what is it now, seven years plus? Oh, much, 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 much appreciated. If you like what you hear, whether you're a longtime listener or new to the podcast, go to WGNRadio.com, go to the podcast section, hit the prompt for this podcast, and then, oh, you have reached Nirvana. Podcast after podcast, scroll down, scroll down, load more, load more. There's all those podcasts for your binging pleasure. So many so that this is episode 389. So sad news the past week or so about the passing of Matthew Perry, the actor and one of the stars of the wildly successful and popular and generational defining sitcoms of all time in television. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. Friends. Friends uh, premiered in 1994, ran for 10 years, and told the comedic and sometimes heart-tugging exploits of a group of 
friends in their 20s and 30s finding their way not only in their lives but also in the hipster era of New York City. You can actually say that 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 time period between 94 and 2004, certainly throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, was really a a renaissance time for New York City. And sadly, when we look at New York today, uh, some 20 years after that show was off the air, uh, New York is is going through some rough times again. Not as bad as they were in the mid to late 70s when New York was bankrupt, literally bankrupt, and was going through a lot of social change and governmental change, and, and the, the city was in bad shape um, infrastructure-wise, uh, crime-wise, economically. It was a really tough time for New York. It's... Um, I remember it as, a, as if just once again as on the periphery. I was a very young kid um, because I was into the news. I I heard about it, but I didn't really understand the implications of it. And now, in fact, I just I saw a great um, documentary about the 1977 and 1978 World Series because those World Series um, featured the Yankees and the Dodgers, right? I mean, this is this is for Major League Baseball having the Yankees and the Dodgers in the World Series. You talk about hype. You talk about ratings. You talk about interest at that time. Truly the two best teams in baseball. Uh, the New York Yankees, led by Reggie Jackson, and they also had Thurman Munson and Craig Nettles, uh, just a a great, great team. Chris Chambliss, um, who else was on that team? Uh, Reggie, obviously, was the big star. Catfish Hunter, the pitcher, just a great, great team. And as well as the the perennial uh, champions, the, the Dodgers in the 70s, with that infield of Garvey and Lopes and Bill Russell and Ron Say. Uh, they had been together since the minor leagues, one of the better teams uh, in baseball. And they, they came together for two consecutive World Series. And it was an interesting battle of superstars and different teams and different cities. And and part of the the, the narrative that they were creating in this uh you know, in this documentary, was the difference in the, the the cities themselves and the fan bases, but the cities themselves, and they showed some clips of New York City in some of the boroughs and neighborhoods, and it it looked like a third world country. If you if you've been watching some of the the pictures of the current um, situation in Gaza, where you see these these blown up buildings and just rubble. It's it, there were some portions of New York that looked like that, and there were no bombs blasted. It was just the city was literally in decay, uh, physically uh, and emotionally. Uh, wow, it was it was, and so now, uh, and you see New York sadly now uh, is sort of going through another rough patch, where things uh, the the. the uh, 
the pandemic really changed the tone of of New York in many ways and and before it could bounce back and 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 return to that vitality and that buzz that it had you know sadly now it's being inundated um with uh with the migrant problem just they're not prepared to handle these migrants from other countries and so it's becoming a huge huge strain on the city and its resources uh, and its population and its daily life and so new york is is it's not as bad as it was in the late 70s but sadly new york that uh, is always uh, been uh, it's it's just a you know it's the center of the universe here um but going through a tough time but in the in the mid 90s to the early 2000s new york went through a tremendous renaissance really started uh in the in the late well right around 92 93 uh or nine well no no i would say probably about 95 or so 96 um because disney had just put out the lion king in 1994 and a couple years later they wanted to present the the uh, a Broadway version of the Lion King, and so they bought uh, a busted out, rat infested theater on the edges of Times Square, about forty first, forty second Street. It was a rough neighborhood. Uh, Times Square was not the urban Disneyland that appears now, and I don't know how much of a Disneyland it is now, but certainly in the late nineties and into the early two thousands, it was it was like a Disneyland. There was a great growth and um b- businesses and and they they reconstructed the whole thing and really made it a a meeting ground for both not only tourists but uh for locals uh and it just transformed times square was a very rough rough neighborhood uh for many many years it was not a tourist attraction at all it was uh, it was a place filled with um uh, with X-rated movie houses and uh, high instances of crime, if you when we look at Times Square today with all the bright lights and and the closed-off streets and the bleachers and the chairs and and uh, the the characters walking around and all the big um, you know stores and lights and everything and giant video screens and. Uh, that is not what Times Square was, certainly in the late 70s and throughout the 80s and even into the early uh, 90s. But when Walt, when the Disney company and was going to bought this theater and was going to rehab it and, and present Lion King, when they spent several millions of dollars to do all that. Well, when a, when a company like Disney invests, that kind of money in an area, well, then other people start to look around and go, well, wait a minute, you know, if Disney's willing to put tens of millions of dollars up on the line, well, then, and they're going to, they always do things right, well, maybe I should. And suddenly uh, there was more uh, investment in the area and other big name companies and stores uh, bought up all these vacant stores and bought up all the old X-rated movie theaters. And suddenly you had uh, big franchise, exciting restaurants, hard rock cafes, uh, you name it. 
big Toys R Us. It was it became um, a magnet, and uh, that really was 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 all uh, you know the result of the Disney Company investing that money in New York, and it was a, it was an amazing transformation. I remember going to New York um, in the late in the early nineties. And going to Times Square, and it was it was rough. It was you know you went there because it was Times Square, and you kind of looked around and you saw the big uh, you know ads you know right there where the ball is. You know you see it on New Year's, but you didn't really hang around in Times Square. It was it was a little edgy. It was, it was more than a little edgy, and that's why I you know I saw the transformation happen over the next uh, ten years where New York became one of my favorite cities. And I would go there many times on business as well as uh, just for fun. I enjoyed the, 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 the energy and the vibe. And uh, I went there in 2021 after the first year of the uh, pandemic, and I really felt a difference. And every place, still, you know, COVID was still hanging around. But uh, it felt different. And now, like I said, New York is really going through a hard patch. But certainly when the show Friends was on, premiered, as I said, in 94, through the early 2000s, on for 10 seasons, uh, that was, that was, it, it was a perfect storm. Uh, the, we, had a, we had a great economy in the late 90s and early 2000s. New York, as I said, was on the rebound, experiencing a, a huge overdue renaissance. And in the middle of that was a show about some young, at that time, Gen X kids. Remember Gen X? You even remember Gen X anymore? <laughs> um, that was the hip, cool, now it's millennium, millennials and Generation uh, Y and Z. But Gen X was the cool uh, up-and-coming generation in the mid-90s and early 2000s. And uh, this show just captured, the Friends show just captured that. It was a perfect timing for that show. It's interesting because Seinfeld, also in the mid-90s is when it took off. It started in the early 90s, but it really didn't catch its steam and catch its rhythm until about 93 and 94, and then went through 98. And Friends obviously stayed on a little longer after Seinfeld did. But uh, but what was interesting was those were both in New York at the same time, took place both in New York, and yet uh, they were very different in their comedy, in their perspectives, and in their viewpoints. Uh, you know, the Seinfeld crew, they were a little older. They were in their late 30s. And they had a whole different perspective, whereas the the friends with Rachel and Chandler and Ross and Phoebe, they um, they had a, a younger kind of hipper in the moment view. Seinfeld, written by Larry, co-written by Larry David, had to have a more cynical and ironic and dark humor view. That's that's. Larry David's view, and at the time he was probably, you know, in his in his late forties or early fifties. So it was a different perspective. Um, Friends was aimed at a young demo, the 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 hot and hip 
Generation X gener- you know, uh, period of time. And as I said, all of the uh, those components just hit all at one time. And Friends was not only a huge hit at the time it was on, from the beginning to the end, they were on the cover of magazines, Rolling Stone. I mean, they were just the coolest. Everybody was, you know, was into Rachel's hair and Ross and Rachel and Joey and Chandler and, you know, the whole thing. And Monica and Phoebe, you know, the the whole group. And uh, they went to Central Perk and they drank coffee. And that's when the whole Starbucks thing also became a, a, a an international trend. You know, drinking coffee, bookstores, that whole hangout kind of vibe. And Friends was representative of the time and of the people. As I said, while Seinfeld was 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 very popular no question number one show uh and took place at the same time in the same era as friends it had a completely different uh comedy and viewpoint um whereas friends was was celebrated and was fun it was it was youthful there was a youthful energy and an optimism and uh, uh you know all that all that goes with youth And Seinfeld had a different view completely. And it's interesting that both of those shows were popular at the same time, uh, taking place, being set in the same city. And even, as I said, the stars, you know, the the Seinfeld people were a little older, obviously, than the the Friends people. Uh, And it was funny to see two different shows, two shows set at the same time in contemporary time, and yet feel and look and talk so different and um so there's no question that friends has become a it was was a cultural pop cultural phenomenon at the time and remains that for many generations the reason why i think friends is retains its popularity even though it was very much a show within its time it 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 reflected its time and if you watch rep you know if you watch the episodes now they're always on tv just like seinfeld but they talk about uh you know it, it it's it's very of the moment but what i think makes that show so transcendent and i think it's even it's more um, popular with younger people today than Seinfeld is, is because of the ages of the people. It did reflect the, 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 the age group and the era, not only just the era of, of, of what was happening at that time in the, in the nineties and two thousands, but it was very representative of what people in that age group, whatever era you're in, still go through. It was it was a show about this group of friends that were that were were defining themselves, their own personalities, their careers, uh, their love lives, obviously, and the ups and downs and the struggles of that, and and that's universal. Your early to mid twenties and and even early thirties, uh, it's a it's a it's a huge time for your personal development. 
we we never really stop developing as as humans you're a little kid and that's your childhood and 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 there are certain aspects of that that we all share in the teen years everybody goes through the same types of things and the 20s and 30s is really an interesting time because it's a time when you when when two things are happening simultaneously you are you are growing as an individual you are beginning to assert your own individuality but at the same time your peer group is still very important and so it's almost like a clash because there's a part of you that wants to be a part of the group, homogenous, in that you all think and dress and and act the same. So it's very tribal in that way. Your friends are important. Your social life is important. You're going out places, restaurants, clubs, parties, events, things like that. And you're you're a social animal. You're growing your social a group and your social surroundings, but at the same time, you're also growing and trying to find who you are as an indiv- as an individual. Um, and and in many ways, trying to establish that individuality, at, while at the same time you're trying to fit in. Uh, it's an interesting dichotomy, but that's what I think we all go through, and and that's what friends reflected. You know, they 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 had their meeting place, uh, you know, at at the at the at the coffee shop where they came and came. You know, they got together and they they told each other's problems, and then you saw them in their individual workplaces. Ross was a teacher. Joey was an aspiring actor. Uh, Chandler, we never knew what Chandler did, but he always had a nice job. You know, Monica was trying to, uh, you know, start her, her cooking business and Phoebe was, uh, you know, this, uh, this musician, um, they all had their own goals. They were all out there trying to establish themselves in their careers. And as I said, as individuals, but then they also came to, Gather where there was a, a comfort level where they could bond with each other. And I think that's universal. Seinfeld was very cynical. So the Seinfeld show was very cynical. It was dark. Uh, it had a, it had a very, I, I thought it was, I mean, I like dark humor and very satirical. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, so I don't know how well Seinfeld, um, appeals to, younger people you might not be a little older to get that little cynical edge to it friends was a much more mass appealing show the the humor was was fast and funny but it wasn't cynical it wasn't satirical it was it was made for the masses it was a little slapsticky um, it was, it's, like I said, it's it's centered around, uh, you know, the events and the everyday lives of young people. So that, as I said before, that included not only a career, but social and, of course, love life. And that, that doesn't change. So I think probably if you're in your early 20s, 25, in your early 20s or, you know, or even late 20s, I bet you friends... Even though that show now has been off the air 
for 20 years, right? Um, I'm sure when you, I bet you the, 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 the Friends reruns are very popular with people in their 20s. In fact, I had a friend, we were talking about the, the, the passing of Matthew Perry, and he's got two daughters who are 25, and he said they know every Friends episode. They've got all the DVDs. They watch them. They could, they can, just like when I watch a Honeymooners episode, and within the first three seconds, I can tell you what episode it is. Um, he said they know right away. Oh, this is the one about, and that's actually what the friends, if you, if you look on the actual episode titles, the, the episodes, each episode of Friends was titled The One About and then blank, whatever the show is about. But the one about is is how all the Friends shows were titled. Many people don't even know that sitcoms do have titles. We don't really know that. They're never shown at the beginning, which I don't know. I don't know why that that there were there, you know the Dick Van Dyke show. If you look back at the Dick Van Dyke show, the Dick Van Dyke show used to have the title of the episode. On the opening. I never understood why they don't do that on television. TV shows, they had the title of the show. And they had all the credits and who produced it and who stars in it. But very few ever showed the title. Every episode of every TV show has a title. Now, we can find those titles out today much easier because we have... The, the program guides on our television set, and they, many times they are printed there. But I never understood why TV shows, for the most part, didn't show the title. Honeymooners never did. Andy Griffith show never did. As I said, the Dick Van Dyke show did. Seinfeld never did. I don't know, you know, All in the Family never did. They never showed the title of the episode. But um, so I think that for a, a person in their 20s and 30s, Friends is just as relevant today as it would be back when those shows first aired 30 years ago. I mean, you think about it. The show first aired 30 years ago in 1994. 30 years ago. Uh, but I, it doesn't seem dated. Certainly the clothes and some of the references are. But, you know, the, the episodes and what they're about, they dealt about people in their 20s and 30s and what, what they do. And while, yes, certain things and certain fads may have changed, but as I've said many times on this podcast, human nature rarely changes over 500 years, over centuries. And so more so than, I think, Seinfeld, I think Friends is certainly a show that will remain contemporary for people as they get a little older into their early and mid to late 20s because they will see themselves in some of the characters and what they're going through and some of the situations that they all go through together and individually. And so I have to think that when the news that Matthew Perry had passed away, one of the uh, beloved 
stars of the show. At a relatively young age, 54, it's hard to believe that the those those young people that we see on the reruns of Friends when they were in their 20s and 30s are now in their 50s, mid-50s. Jennifer Aniston, I believe, is 54. They were all around the same age. Um, 54 is certainly not young, but in today's world, it's not that old either. And um, so I think it was a shock to hear about Matthew Perry's passing. Uh, If you know anything about him, you know that, sadly, he has had quite a tough life over the last 30 years. And he just wrote a memoir, which is ironic. He just wrote a memoir that came out last year that that uh, was very raw and very honest about his battle with many addictions, pills and alcohol. Uh, and uh, he's he had a rough go of it. And it seems that he'd finally been able to to find a, a way to get sober and not only was relishing that but also was committed to helping others in fact during his interviews for the book he would say and they show these clips after his passing where he said i know i'm going to be remembered for friends but i'd really like to be remembered for somebody who helped people get sober so he was certainly committed to that so which made this sudden death all the more shocking and sad because it seemed like after several decades of battling on a regular basis and having relapses and having some very serious health problems, apparently his colon exploded because he was taking opioids. He was in a coma. Uh, and it was just some really serious health issues as a result of his uh, his addictions to alcohol and drugs and pills, um, obviously it, it probably put some kind of a strain on his body over the years and may have resulted. We're still waiting to see what the autopsy says. Kind of a strange circumstance where they said he drowned. Um, he had a heart attack and 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 drowned in his jacuzzi. Uh, that he was alone. It seemed the, the 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 circumstances seem a little odd, and who knows if we'll find more information about that. I mean, let's let's not forget that when Elvis Presley died, he initially was also uh, reported that he died of a heart attack, and it wasn't until the autopsy, and then years later, that we found yes, certainly he had a heart attack. But it was a heart attack brought on by extreme drug use, you know, prescription drug use, but drug use and abuse, none, none, the, none, the same, none no different. And that, uh, yes, he died of a heart attack, but it wasn't natural causes. He was only 42 years old. And so initially he was old. Elvis Presley dies of heart attack, and later on we found out many of the dark secrets uh, and the dark side that Elvis was living and his addictions. So we'll see. Um, But nonetheless, it was a shock to hear. And as I said, it was sad to hear. And I'll be, I'll be, uh, you know, admittedly, um, I watched Friends 
like everyone did <laughs> in that time period. Um, pretty much that was my age group. So uh, I could relate to what they were doing. Now, as I said, that wasn't re- I'm more of a Seinfeld guy because, as I said, I like dark humor and ironic humor. Um, so I, 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 I watched Friends, but I was never like a Friendsaholic. I can't, I can't quote Friends, uh, you know, dialogue. And I, when, I, when, when an episode comes on, I don't know what it is. And I don't really watch the reruns all that much. I watched it at the time. Um, because that's it was on, it was popular, and that's what you did, and people talked about it, and so you had to stay current. But I certainly wasn't as intensive a fan of Friends as I was with Seinfeld, and still, I'm still today. I still watch Seinfeld episodes every day. They're always on, and I still watch them. It's kind of like, as I said before, like I watch The Honeymooners or The Andy Griffith Show or Dick Van Dyke. Some of my favorite shows. Um, that Seinfeld is is the one that I will watch more than Friends, because I said the Friends. Well, don't, get, don't, don't get me wrong. Friends was a was a very funny show, clever show, but but the humor was a little was a little broad for me. And I, by broad, I just mean it was. It was aimed at a mass audience, and I like the edge and the dark and the satirical side that Seinfeld was. That's just my sense of humor. The ironic. They said I like Woody Allen movies. I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of Along Comes Mary type of humor, which is where you know Friends was kind of at. If you're going to make a a, a a comparison, but still, I watched the show not as religiously. Not as intense. But when Matthew Perry died, it did dawn on me because there was a huge outpouring uh, when he passed away. I mean, it was it was breaking news and news uh, not only over, all over the Internet, but, you know, on the TV news. It was a breaking story. It was the lead story on many local newscasts, if not national. Because this show is so beloved, because it was such a pop culture and remains such a pop culture touchstone, and those actors, you know, David Schwimmer and Matt LeBlanc and Courtney Cox and Jennifer Aniston and Lisa Lisa Kudrow and, um, and Matthew Perry, those people, they symbolize... For many people, just like when we're growing up, and I always talk about music, we're always tied to the music that we grow up with in our early teens and 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 twenties or so, because music is was is such a, a a major part of of where you go to bond with your friends, friends, right? <laughs> and and so are certain television shows, and so. Those those actors in 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 many people's minds will forever be you know Ross and Rachel and Phoebe and Joey and Chandler and Monica. I mean, just they just always will be, and they were parts of people's childhoods and 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 
and maturing times. And so that they, they, they become a part of our collective memories of our youth and of, as we were growing up. And so those, those actors are forever bound, bonded. And it seems like, from what I've just seen when you just read about, it sounds like they really were good friends off stage. Many times people on that are on shows and they play a group of friends, like I, I don't know how close Jason Alexander and Jerry Seinfeld are or how close Michael Richards and Jewy Louis-Dreyfus are now. They certainly played a close-knit group of friends on Seinfeld. But a lot of times the people that they are co-stars on a show don't even aren't even social friends. It's really just a job. But it seems like because it's almost like the Beatles uh, in many ways. In some ways, in fact, uh, you know, they always talked about the, the four Seinfeld people as the Fab Four. But in many ways, the, but they were a little older. The Friends cast were, were almost like the Beatles. They, 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 they were representatives of a generation. They, they, it, was, it was a cultural shift. It's when Generation X was, was beginning to, to, um, to arise as a pop culture driver away from the baby boomers. And then the millennials steamrolled Generation X. But believe me, in the mid to late 90s to early 2000s, all you heard about was Gen X, Gen X, Gen X, Gen X. The same way you hear now today about millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z. But it was, it was, it was a big deal with the rise of Gen X because for so many years from the 60s through the 90s, almost 30 years, the baby boomers were driving our culture. In many ways, and still because of sheer numbers. But then suddenly, a new group of 20 and 30 somethings began to take hold. And they, their, their likes and dislikes were different, and there was a culture shift. And friends, more than Seinfeld, because it was so of the time, reflected that. So, you know, so they were kind of Beatles-like in their generational impact, that TV show. And, as, and, and also, you often hear about the Beatles that the four of them during their heyday in, say, you know, the early, you know from 64 to, say, 66 at least, before they, they quit touring, and then they sort of went off on their own and became just a, a studio recording band. They never toured again. But those years between 64 and 66, when, when, when their fame exploded internationally and they were regularly touring for two years, they were living in each other's pockets. They were bunking together in hotel rooms and, and, and on planes and buses, and they really were kind of the, the four musketeers. And you often hear the four of them talk about no one knew what it was like to be a Beatle except those four people. And I think in many ways... No one knows what it's like to be a friend <laughs> except those actors on the show because that show took off so quickly. It was so big. It was such a pop culture phenomenon, and there was so attention, so much attention brought to each of them individually as well as a group on the show that they will always be tied together in people's minds. 
Ironically, when Matthew Perry died uh, a couple of days after so, you I was waiting to see some comments from Jennifer Aniston or David Schwimmer or or Matt LeBlanc or Lisa Kudrow or or Courtney Cox, and I wasn't seeing anything. And then about three or four days later, they put out a joint statement, you know, from the actors of Friends, from the cast of Friends. So even at that time, they weren't even talking individually, but they were talking as a group. So I really believe that that they were they seem to be close friends. In fact, I also read a story that Lisa Kudrow is going to adopt Matthew Perry's dog. <laughs> so clearly they were friends and they stuck together. And you do see pictures of them vacationing together or hanging out sometimes. Because they they were in a bubble. They were in one of those rarefied airs where immense attention and fame and fortune just hit all the, all the, the, the as I said, a perfect storm. All the ingredients were right. And you can, the only people that can know what that's like when that amount of, of attention and fame and money and, 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 and influence uh, hits either one person or a group of people, and only those people can know what that feels like, and it bonds them. But it also, so not only I'm, I'm sure are each one of those uh, actors uh, intensely affected by this shocking passing of Matthew Perry, but even though it, for me it wasn't devastating, it wasn't, overtly sad it was shocking because i wasn't a huge a huge intense fan of uh of friends although i did like chandler's i did like matthew perry's character the most because he was the most sarcastic and cynical in that group his character so i did like matthew perry probably the, the best of all the the characters on Friends, but it wasn't life changing for me. It wasn't. It, it it was a shock, but it didn't jolt me. It didn't. It didn't. Um, it didn't make me overtly sad in a personal way, like really touching and hitting me. But it occurred to me that for a, a huge group of people in a certain age group, this this probably was kind of jolting and 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 almost self-reflective because it's this peer group and it's somebody on a on something this show that may have meant a lot to people it's a part of their growing up it's a part of their lives they have they have fond memories of it those characters hold a special place for them and then suddenly, one of those people on that show passes away. It's always very strange when someone your age passes away, especially when you're a little younger. You know, for the most part, when you're in your 20s and 30s or 40s, you know, the, 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 you know, your, your grandparents pass away. You, you certainly will experience death at some time. 
in those early stages. Now, some people sadly lose a parent, which is very devastating. But for the most part, many people's exposure to death is more of an, an expectation. Someone of an older generation passes away like a grandparent or an older uncle or aunt. But it's rarely someone of your own age, if if you're in your teens or your 20s or your 30s or even your 40s. You're still vibrant. You're still young. And so to have somebody in your age group pass away becomes jolting because when we're in our teens and our 20s and our 30s, even our 40s, we have a sense of immortality. We don't think of death. We're not thinking of the end game. We're thinking of the future in in a positive way with many more years to go. We're thinking in the moment and the future, and it's always optimistic and positive. We're not thinking of ailments or death. When you're in your 20s, you think you're immortal. You think you're going to live forever. It's only when you get in your 60s and your 70s where you start to go, wait a minute. And so when somebody of your own age, if you're in that age group, passes away, it can be very jolting. If it's somebody that you, that you personally know in your personal life, or as I said, somebody from even a, a pop culture way of somebody that you grew up with, listening to, or watching on television. Certainly the first one of these, and I mentioned before, the first celebrity where you saw the impact that this person had on a whole generation and oddly enough in many in many respects still does was Elvis Presley once again in 1977 he was only 42 years old very young and when Elvis died it was really the beginning of our pop culture consciousness. You know, many of the established stars of the day at that time, from an from an from an an older era, like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and people like that, they all lived relatively long lives into their seventies, eighties, and even nineties. But here was Elvis Presley, who was a phenomenon and an icon of the teen evolution, if you will. In the 50s, before Elvis, what teens thought was interesting wasn't wasn't big news. It was an adult-oriented society in the 40s and in the early 50s. Kids were still supposed to be seen and not heard. What they liked really was of of minor consequence. It was an adult-driven world. And when Elvis came along in the mid-50s, suddenly the cultural focus shifted to young people. And it's never, it, and, and, and since then, it's never, it's only gotten stronger. As I said many times, our, 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 our culture today is pretty much run by 14-year-olds and what they like, and even more specifically, 14-year-old girls. But Elvis started that. 
and and his cultural um, influence is is immeasurable. And so when he died, I think it shocked even the mainstream and the press and everyone else and started this whole new, wait a minute, we have to re-examine this. Because when he died, there was an immediate reaction around the world, but certainly here in the United States. Fans didn't even know why, but they congregated outside the walls of Graceland. I mean, Elvis lived there, and it was never a, a tourist attraction. He lived there. People, rare, I mean, some people hung out there, but it wasn't like it is now, which is now a, a, like a, a museum. But when Elvis lived there, people really left him alone for the most part. But when he died, it was a whole generation of people who grew up with Elvis he felt like he was a part of their family. He was like their, their brother and sister. They had a huge crush on him, whatever it was. But there was a huge connection. And the outpouring took, I think, everybody by surprise. The fans themselves, who, who didn't even realize how important Elvis was to them, but certainly the media and probably Elvis's family. If you ever look at the, at the footage of Elvis's funeral, I mean, Memphis, is the, the streets were lined with people for miles. And I don't think anybody ever expected that. It was because there was a different thing. And entertainment before Elvis, before rock and roll, entertainment was there as a distraction. It was something that people enjoyed, but it wasn't life-altering or life-changing but rock and roll music especially and then movies to some extent but certainly rock and roll it was about it was about generation gaps it was about freedom it was about liberation it was about a, a different in mindset it was a youth-based movement i remember my mom when i was a little kid she would say well why are you buying all these records I've got all these records, and they're all up in the attic. And when she passed away, I found them all. <laughs> but in my mom's generation, when they hit a certain age, they kind of stopped listening to the radio or buying records. It was almost like there was a rite of passage. And, well, that okay, well, that was something that I did when I was a certain age, but now I'm married and... And I don't listen to music anymore like that. I don't buy the new albums that come out. I, you know, it was kind of like a, a, a certain period of life, and then you move past it. But ever since rock and roll, entertainment, celebrities, music, movies, they, they remained an, an integral part of people's lives. As I said, you go to see... Paul McCartney now is 81 years old, and he's filling stadiums right now in, uh, you know, in a tour in Australia, and you've got 81-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 20-year-olds. There's a different mindset. And when Elvis passed away, that was the recognition of that. Like, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, when, when Jack Benny died... Nobody, you know, the, the, the Jack or George Burns died, and these were big 
celebrities of their time, but when they died, nobody, nobody, nobody uh, lined the streets. Nobody was crying. They were entertainers. People enjoyed them, but they didn't change their lives. They did. They didn't get into their sin, their skin, and into their souls like like so many rock stars did, like the Beatles, like Elvis. So that was a huge, when Elvis died, it was a huge kind of cultural touchstone and turning point because it showed just how important that cultural shift was and how different it was from previous generations. And then it, it, it seems odd to think about it, but just three years later, so you had Elvis who kind of started the rock and roll revolution, right? And you, I know you can go back and say, oh, Elvis, uh, you know, stole music of the black. Okay, okay I, I get all that. But this, if you strip away all the, the, the revisionist history, rock and roll started with Elvis Presley. Yes, there were other people before, and there was Chuck Berry. I get all that. But it was Elvis that made it a mainstream music, pure and simple. That's undisputed. You can talk about other people, Little Richard. I get that. But in terms of a cultural phenomenon that changed everything, that opened doors for people like Chuck Berry and, and, uh, and Little Richard, it was Elvis. And then ironically, about 10 years, less than 10 years later, then here come the Beatles in 1964. Land in America, appear on Ed Sullivan in, in, in February, literally changed the world overnight once again. And ironically, you had Elvis, who started the revolution, and the Beatles then, who picked it up and started their own revolution. And within three years after Elvis died, John Lennon is assassinated in 1980. And he's only 40 years old. Elvis was 42. And so within a 10-year, within a three-year period, we lost two of the major architects of a cultural revolution. Elvis and a Beatle. Within three years. And if you saw the after you saw the reaction to Elvis's passing, and even in the years after that with the Elvis impersonators and Graceland becoming a museum and, and their, you know, Elvis chapels and things like that, and, and there's still the remnants of that, you know, almost 50 years after his passing. But the same kind of response and even more intense and even more sad was the reaction to when John Lennon was killed in December of 1980. Literally within an hour, once again, fans did the same thing, probably 
unconsciously, not knowing how to process and how to understand and digest what the news they just heard that John Lennon was killed. They did the same thing Elvis fans did three years before. They went to his house for whatever reason. And within an hour or so, and then throughout the night, in front of the Dakota, right across the street from from um, from Central Park on 72nd and Central Park West, they congregated outside the, the Dakota building where John and Yoko lived and were singing Beatles songs. And once again, a communal tribute as well as a communal grieving for somebody who who wasn't just an entertainer, who just didn't sing songs, but who touched their lives, who they felt was their friend, who was their guide, who was their mentor, who was a part of their lives. Just like those Elvis fans were, 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 uh, were presenting three years before. You can make an argument that the Beatles revolution was even bigger and more intense than Elvis's was. And John Lennon was the main architect with Paul McCartney in the Beatles songs and success. So to lose John, especially in such a tragic way, a man who dedicated his life in many ways to peace, to be brutally shot was even more tragic especially as he was just beginning to reemerge, just put a new album out, was getting ready to to become uh, a vibrant creative artist after taking five years off to, to raise his newborn child in 1975, to have his life cut off so early, and especially at a time when he was just reemerging, when the muse was back, the, the, the creative energy was back. We can only imagine what John would have done throughout the 80s and beyond. His, his death, for me especially, and, and other people, is still angering because we don't know what we have missed and what was so ridiculously taken away from us. But it was a cultural touchstone when John Lennon was killed for many people. And then, ironically, two years after John Lennon A cultural icon of the 60s, you had Elvis, a cultural icon of the 50s, passes away in 1977. You have John Lennon, a cultural icon of the 60s, passes away in 1980. And then two years after John Lennon is killed, an icon of the 70s passes away, John Belushi. In 1982, changed television forever as one of the founding members of the Not Ready for Primetime Players on Saturday Night Live and went on to create memorable characters and movies, the Blues Brothers, Animal House. Cultural icon. Now, I have to say... When John Lennon was killed, I mean, Elvis, you know, I have a, I have a kinship with Elvis because we share the same birthday, <laughs> January 8th. 
But I was never a huge Elvis fan. It was way it was long before I was born. And even though I was born during the Beatles existence, I was much too young to understand it. Even by the time they were broken up, I was still a little too young to understand it. I remember four or five years after they'd broken up was when I came into my realization as a, as a young kid and I heard the names of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but didn't fully even understand what that meant. As I've said many times, you know, I was an only child, so I didn't have younger brothers and sisters to pass on some of this, this pop culture knowledge to me. I had to go out and, and discover it myself on my own. My parents weren't playing Beatle records around the house. They were too old for that. And I didn't have older brothers and sisters to pass that on to me. So even though at a young age I was into music, I was more into music of the time. I was listening to the radio and hearing the, the, the music of the, of the, of the, uh, of the moment because I didn't have anybody really to teach me about the past. In fact, I remember when I was in grammar school, we had music class, and, and once a month we could bring in albums and we would play different songs on our albums. This is one guy, one kid, who brought in Beatles albums. And he knew all about the Beatles. And I, and I, I, and I at that point, felt like I was fairly uh, you know, schooled in music to some extent, even in, in my own little world. I was a huge Elton John fan at the time. But I listened to the radio. I knew songs by heart and everything like that. But I really was not well-schooled on the Beatles because they were the past. I didn't understand them. Now, my mom did put these, bought these little, which I still have. I still have these little figurines that my mom put on my birthday cake of the Beatles, the young-looking Beatles. Still have those. So of a corgi yellow submarine um, toy that I used to play with as a little kid. But I really didn't know what I was playing with. I didn't really understand it was the Beatles, the Beatles. But this kid brought in and he knew all about the Beatles. And I felt a little out of it and a little like, boy, am I ignorant on the Beatles? This kid really knows the Beatles and I should know the Beatles, I guess. And then it struck me. He came from a family with like eight, he had like seven siblings. So obviously he had older brothers and sisters who were there for the Beatles revolution when it happened. And they passed that music on to him. Like, look, I, look, I, everybody at a certain point in the 70s had the red and blue Beatles greatest hits albums, the 63 to 67 red album and the 67 to 70 blue album, double album. So I, I knew the Beatles music. I knew their greatest hits, but I didn't really know their albums or their deep cuts because those weren't played on on am hit radio in fact where i learned about the beatles really and then went off and did a deep dive into their catalog wasn't until the movie sergeant pepper's only hearts club band in like 1978 well it was a horrible movie terrible movie you know everything bad about 70s movie making was that movie this musical with peter frampton and the bgs and steve martin and aerosmith it was a crazy 
it was a very ill-conceived, poorly executed film. But what was great about it was the was the soundtrack. Not so much the the performances, although there are some great performances. Earth, Wind, and Fire's version of "Got to Get You Into My Life" is one of their greatest hits. Same thing with Aerosmith and their cover of "Come Together." But what was great about the soundtrack to this movie, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, was that it featured some of the big hits by the Beatles, but many deep cuts that I had never heard before. Like, Oh Darling, from from Abbey Road. Or Getting Better, from Sgt. Pepper. I heard Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, but I don't really, never heard a lot of, like, She's Leaving Home. Or a day in the life; those weren't played on the on on AM radio, on WLS or WCFL here in Chicago. The the songs of the moment were played. So when I I even though they were different renditions in many ways, by either Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, or other people like Maxwell Silverhammer from from Abbey Road, I never heard that song before. Steve Martin did it. I was a huge fan of Steve Martin at the time. He did it in the movie. It's on the soundtrack, but it made me then get curious when I heard these versions because the songs, even though some of the versions weren't great, the the basics of the song were still there and they were intriguing. They, They caught my ear. And it was that album that then inspired me to do a deep dive into the Beatles catalog and buy their albums and discover the the originals versions of Maxwell Silverhammer and Getting Better and She's Leaving Home and Mean Mr. Mustard and songs that I had never heard before. And that's when I really became a major Beatle fan thanks to that horrible movie and even that average soundtrack but it was a revelation to me that's how i learned about the beatles no one really taught me about that i didn't have anybody around to teach me so i actually owe that horrible movie and that horrible uh soundtrack a great great debt and when john lennon was killed i it, it 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 hit me in 1980, but I was still an early teenager, and it didn't really I didn't really fully appreciate John Lennon as an artist and as an activist because I was still too young, and it wasn't probably until 1984 when I was in my late teens where because Yoko put out the Milk and Honey album. And some of the unreleased music that was recorded in demo version or in in unfinished versions during the Double Fantasy sessions, which was John's last finished album in 1980. In 1984, she put out Milk and Honey that had songs like Nobody Told Me and Beautiful Boy and Borrowed Time. And in retrospect, I I discovered John Lennon. And then did a deep when that when the, when that album came out. Now I was older. I had a better appreciation, a, a, a deeper um, appreciation and knowledge of music, even more. And that's when I did a deep dive into John Lennon's solo career and his life, and read countless books about him, and got all of his solo albums. And now John Lennon is a major, major 
influence and musical force for me. And I was, I'm lucky enough to have interviewed Yoko Ono twice. And whenever I go to New York, I go to Strawberry Fields and I go to the Dakota. So the John Lennon thing um, was a cultural passing. And when John Belushi died, now that one hit me. Now that one hit me. Because I love John Belushi. Watch Saturday Night Live every week. I'd love to to impersonate the Blues Brothers. I saw the Blues Brothers. I can't even tell you how many times me and my friend Jack went to see the Blues Brothers in 1980. We would go almost every after every noon we would in the summer when that movie came out we would go to see the blues brothers and the rest of our day would 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 happen after that so when he died in 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 1982 i'll never forget it it was the it was it was in march and i was going to a uh, a regional basketball game of of our saint pat's shamrocks where i went to high school and i wore my blues brothers t-shirt and i was physically sad because this one was, I felt, of my peers. Just like I would think that the Matthew Perry passing, like I said, would be devastating for a certain generation. For me, John Belushi's passing was the one that hit me. Belushi was 32. I was, I was just a teenager in high school. But he was someone who I looked up to who I felt was a peer or an older brother in many ways, but who I was so intensely uh, attracted to and interested in and followed, saw all his movies, saw all his TV shows, watched him, just knew everything about him, I thought, but had a great respect. He He was what cool was during those times. And that one jolted me. And I'm sure that that's the same way that people felt in the 90s when Kurt Cobain died for a certain Gen X group. Same kind of touchstone passing of somebody who had a huge cultural impact on people's lives. And once again, I think he was 27, 28 years old. Belushi, 32. Now, once again, Matthew Perry was 54, lived a little longer, but the first of the friends to pass away. And as I said, speaking from personal experience when remembering John Belushi's passing and how I was physically sad and depressed when that happened, I felt like I lost a close friend. I would assume that for many people in a certain age group, Matthew Perry's passing feels the same way. He was literally a friend, right? <laughs> it all depends on when you grew up, how you grew up, what affected you, what you were interested in. But it seems in the last 40 or 50 years, celebrities, whether it's music, movies, television, the impact that entertainment has on our lives is more than just 
a passing fancy or a distraction like it was for older generations. It means something to us. It, 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 it was a part of our lives. We grew up with it, and it stayed with it. We never outgrew it. My parents outgrew it to some extent, whether they meant to or not. But when you see 40,000 people or 70,000 people filling up a stadium, you see Bruce Springsteen, and most of the people are in their 70s and 60s and 50s, they ain't outgrowing it. When you see him as 74 years old or, you know, look at the, the Rolling Stones, you know, they just had their an album come out. Mick Jagger is 80, 80 years old and still running around, you know, doing the chicken walk like he did when he was 25. It's a whole different cultural mindset. And so when someone who was integral and pivotal in that cultural shift, in that cultural perfect storm, who affected individual people's lives and and their fame was so big that collectively they affected people, like an Elvis, like a John Lennon, like a John Belushi, like a Kurt Cobain. And now one of the friends passed away. The stark reality now is there can never be a friend's reunion. That was the that was the shocking bolt when John Lennon was killed. There was always talk about a Beatles reunion for from from when they broke up in April of 1970 on. Will the Beatles get together? 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 For 10 years, there was a a constant drumbeat. In fact, one of the great skits on Saturday Night Live in the early days, in 1975, I think, in his first season, Lorne Michaels, the producer who's still there, did a great sketch where he he offered the the four Beatles $3,000 to reunite. Oh, crazy he made it sound like it was a like it, this was a really great offer we're going to offer you three thousand dollars if you just cut together with us that's how culturally important it was that the beatles get back together once again 1975 they had just broken up for five years the thought was that always they have to get together again and rumor has it that paul and john were actually together watching that show at john's apartment I believe, which was not far from Rockefeller Center where they taped Saturday Night Live, and they were actually going to go to the studio to take the money, to accept the money, at least the two of them. How great would have that been? But then they didn't. That would have been that would have been a pop culture moment. Talk about a pop culture moment. But the not only was John Lennon's murder stinging because of its tragedy around it being killed senselessly but then it but culturally pop culturally musically once we got over the fact of john getting killed and and the sadness and the sorrow around that the other reality struck there can never be a beatles reunion and that's what's happened now with Matthew Perry. Now, look, I'm not putting Matthew Perry on the same level as Elvis Presley or John Lennon or Kurt Cobain or John Belushi in terms of 
of talent or influence or importance or legacy. But there's no question that his contribution to Friends was major. And Friends as a TV show and as an entity is and was an important cultural and personal memory and event that will have a long, long legacy for years to come. And so the sad reality of not only losing Matthew Perry at a relatively young age, but also the realization now that there can never be a true friends reunion. And so for people in that age group, I have to think that that's that they're feeling right now the way I felt when John Belushi passed away. Sad and depressed and feeling like it's not fair and feeling like I lost, well, it's cliched, but feeling like I lost a friend. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 389. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.